everybody. This is Shelly with Reads and Weeds. And back for his third show is Mike Williams, whoop, whoop, who is going to talk a lot today. I'm just going to pepper him with questions because this is a little mini-sode to talk about the Rose of Paracelsus on Secrets and Sacraments by William Leonard Picard. We mentioned this a few shows ago as one of the books uh, to look into on psychedelics and spirituality. We didn't talk about it that much on the show, but we just had our first ever Entheofest on September 19th in the Dyak, yeah. Ann Arbor, and it was an incredible success. So the first ever organized, as far as I know, <laughs> at least in Michigan, the first ever kind of organized recognition of an entheofest movement of the support of decriminalizing entheogens uh, kind of across the country it's a movement right now and then i'm reading rose of paracelsus and i realize it's it's not a new movement it's an old 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 movement that's deep and far and wide and uh, this man william leonard picard probably knows more about it than most people in the world. And so I start reading this book and it's so much, it's so beautifully written and it's such a huge story that you start wondering which parts are true and which parts are fantastical, which parts are allegorical and which, and just kind of how much of a genius this man is. So William Leonard Picard was able to be at Entheofest where he spoke on the diag to a wonderfully, it wasn't screaming and shouting. He had everybody scoot up and sit on the ground on this beautiful day and he talked to him and he said he'd never really talked to people like that before in a big crowd like that because he was serving two consecutive life sentences. And he got out on release, compassionate release because of his age and COVID is what I understand which is how he was able to come to the table and sign the books. So now I'm completely fascinated with the man and I know that you know more about him than I do. Here we go. <laughs> the first, and thank you for muting. I can tell there's a lot of action down there on your porch, but now as soon as you can, I want you to tell me kind of what you know about his background and jail time and why I was there and when this book came to be, uh, can you do that? Yeah, so I mean, the first thing to know about Picard is he's an enigma. He's uh, a lot of his history and background is actually a, a total mystery. I mean, you have his story, you have the stories that have been passed on by, you know, various documentaries, you have what you can find on Wikipedia, but a lot of it doesn't actually line up that well. So I, first and foremost, anything that we think we know about him, we can't actually know for sure. Um, there, there are some things we do know. Um, we do know that he, in fact, was busted for the largest LSD bust uh, to ever happen. What year was that and how much? 
I believe that was in 2000. He was driving. He had actually just shut down uh, the laboratory. He had renovated out of an old missile silo near Omigo, Kansas. And my understanding is he had kind of been tipped off that things were about to go down partially because he has a really close relationship with the DEA, but he was dry. He'd torn down the lab and he was moving the lab across Kansas when he was actually arrested. Um, and I believe that was either 99 or 2000. And then, uh, like you said, he was released on compassionate release due to COVID in mid July, 2020. So he's been out just over a year after having served 20 years of a double life sentence. Life sentence. For yeah, not I, murder. For not murder. For, for actually having never harmed anyone directly. Yeah, and, and His so crimes this, were nonviolent. So this was originally published. 2016, I believe. Oh, oh, so it was published while he was in jail. Yes, he wrote this from jail. Oh, my gosh. Okay, because it's based on the the title, uh, just for the listener, just if you look this up, the title is based on another book by... um, Jorge Luis Borges, translated by Andrew Hurley, which was released in 1998, right? So it's based on the short story of the same name by Jorge Luis Borges. So this was released while he was in jail in 2016. And then the second revised advanced reader copy 2019. I didn't realize that he released it in jail, which meant that... Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. I think, um, you know, looking a little bit at his professional history is probably a good place to start to understand where the book begins. Yes. Okay. He had, he was doing graduate studies at uh, Harvard. Harvard uh, Kennedy School of Government uh, while also doing research as a fellow at Harvard School of Medicine. He's already, you know, dual enrolled in graduate studies at Harvard in medicine and government. And so part of his project he was working on at Harvard, which I'm not 100% sure, but I'm pretty sure it was backed and funded by the DEA. Um, Yes. So that was a, he was doing a research project on this underground entheogen network, this underground LSD network, essentially. While doing his research and being, you know, a psychonaut himself, who's also heavily connected to government and, you know, Ivy League institutions and research, they came to him. Uh, They had their finger on the pulse already. So in the book, it has him getting out of jail, going to a monastery, and then going to Harvard. And is that 
a fantastical thing? Is that a, do you know if that order is not autobiographical? Okay, so the book itself is written in prose. It's a it's a poet. It's a it's a giant poem. Yeah, it's um, beautiful. It's beautiful. He, and if you listen to him talk, it's not just his writing style. Um, you know, not only did we have the great fortune of listening to him speak at Antheofest, but the night before, um, we had a small speakers dinner with. You know, everybody that was speaking and some heavy hitters from around the state that have been involved in drug policy for a long time and psychedelic movement. And I got a chance to sit down and moderate a panel with Leonard Picard, uh, Barking Dog Daryl Brown, as well as our good friend Julie Barron, uh, Larry Norris from Decrim Nature National, and Ayana E.E., who is the late Kalindi E.E.'s partner right right um that's when I, that was my first chance to really get to know him at every question i presented he spoke in a very mellow tone kind of like you mentioned for entheofest he pulled in the whole room and he took his time very peaceably you know yeah. speaking in a very poetic manner that was incredibly powerful and moving. So I, and I mean, it's very evident now, uh, you know, he's, he's currently uh, reviewing psychedelic startups. Um, like he's heavily invested in the movement as it moves forward, but not necessarily in a decrim. He recognizes that beyond decrim, these things will be legalized and that people are going to make money. He doesn't claim to be, you know, anti-capitalist or anything. He's very involved in, you know, this could work. This might not work. And, you know, reviewing essentially the value of these companies um, for, I mean, you know, honestly, I'm not sure who he's reviewing for, but uh, he, he has his finger on the pulse still. Which is astonishing. If you think about being arrested, being out of the workforce for 20 years, and then immediately being in Big Pharma or whatever mm-hmm. is fascinating to me. Or not nobody, Big Pharma, but, but like... I shouldn't say nobody. Very, very, very few people in the world, and I mean, can probably count them on two hands. Yeah. Of the knowledge of LSD and its pharmacology and potential benefits as much as he does. So there's nobody better for that position. As for his... You know, your question about him being in prison and or jail and getting out and then enrolling in Harvard. Sequence of events in this. Well, and the monastery was in between. Those yeah. Days. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, well, so I don't know what he was locked up for the first time, but it does appear that that is the case. Sequence right. of events on how this went. I believe he actually discovered buddhism in jail the first time and then went to the monastery before then enrolling at harvard okay so 
when this book opens up, he's sort of explaining the life of being in jail and, and joining this monastery. And he has to kind of peel back the layers of that institutionalized him so he can get back to peace again. And he does this, these silent menial chores and he's right in the middle of downtown San Francisco, I think. He's never sure exactly how long he's going to stay when he's there. And when he decides, when he finally is ready to move, he's ready to move back into the the study that he wants to do. And he and he goes to Harvard. And his description of being there, of everyone's minds being overwhelmed. I'm going to try to find a passage because his descriptions of being at Harvard and the students and the energy and the exchanges, everything is so flowery and wonderful. And it's kind of like, oh, okay, okay. Part of me was like, okay, get on with it. <laughs> you know, get get on with the story. But I'm realizing, like you said, this is just the way he talks. Well, I think part of why he paints the picture and speaks in this way is, you know, and I think it gets into it a little bit more as he unravels the story, is the teachings of the six. And uh, we'll, we'll get into who the six specifically may be, uh, yeah. but... Uh, the whole idea, and I'm sure you're familiar with it just as much as I am, is LSD teaches you the beauty and connectivity and everything. Yeah. And for him, everything seems to be that beautiful, ecstatic experience. And so he writes about it the way, uh, you know, like... Like it's Walden's Pond or, uh, you know, anything else. Like it's. I'm going to read something because if anybody's been to college at any level or even finals in high school, you know that you're brain dead and tired and all of your enthusiasms and, and ambitions for being number one in the class suddenly are just lost in sleeplessness and fatigue and you desperately wanting to pass. And, and so I'm going to read. This is him. He has this small group of friends that he's he's spending time with. And um, reading period embraced us the silent weeks before finals. The winter's cold cut to the very bone of thought. We wound along obstinate winds in painful dusks. The campus was virtually deserted. The archways loomed with thinking students who moved ponderously with the gravity of church wardens. And then he goes on, I resided in Radcliffe dorms this term. During frequent storms, the small window by my desk ticked with flecks of tossing snowflakes. At brain break, the hiatus at 9 p.m. when everyone stopped tearing hair and smiting breasts, the wandering halls were a maze of students that suddenly appeared and disappeared in a house of mysteries. I came upon a nearby door, opened so slightly in a room rosy with candlelight and the urgent night odor of flowers. A single curtain moved softly like a sail in the air. Within were the sounds of some resurrected Aphrodite astride an unseen lover. A glimpse of a satin duvet bunched her waist, the plunging of her hips yielding shrill, incoherent cries. A tartan shawl with a white brooch lay loose over a Harvard chair. 
absolute humanity replaced my logic with tangled emotions. I listened like some, I listened like some anxious voluptuary until one could bear it no longer, then retreated to blank pages. So this is him saying we were studying and I took a break and I caught some people having sex. <laughs> but I realized I needed a dictionary through this whole book. I kept finding words and I was like, oh, I, I his vocabulary is mind blowing. Oh my God. There were chemicals I didn't know. There were countries I didn't know. There were religious rights. I had to look up history because when he starts, he's what I'm gathering is he's in Harvard. He's meeting because of the nature of being at Harvard and what he's studying suddenly they'll be called because some head of state from some country is going to be speaking and they're invited. And because he is sort of on radars, he starts being introduced to the six. So they introduce themselves. Hey, he, he doesn't have right, some yeah. connection. Right. They, you know, let him know that he's on their radar and yeah. You know, essentially with a great overtone of mystery, the way he describes it, will present themselves one by one when he's ready, when it is the right time. I don't I, I don't exactly know. I You don't know who the six are? Yeah, well, no, I mean... It, I'm not sure anybody knows who the six are. Right, um, right. As, as Crimson, so Crimson being the first of the six that reveals himself. Right. So Crimson is the securities expert. Oh, hey there. Hi. <laughs> Paul says hi. I say hi. <laughs> we, we started having Microdose Monday, which has become Microdose General Weekdays lately. I today. I'm very upset with myself. <laughs> I did not. And good, it was, good. It was you, very helpful. And I'm not that upset. Have a nice day. All right, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so I'm just going to explain to listeners that when we say the six, he starts mentioning the six early on, and he's aware, or maybe he's writing it in hindsight, but he's aware that they're going to reveal themselves and they're people with certain knowledge that is unveiled, like they all have certain, this person knows about chemicals in small countries. This person knows about security at the top levels in drug bureaus. This person knows about disguises, like, and they seem connected, but remote and all over the world. And with a heightened consciousness that influences him the moment they're together and shares, it's like, as soon as he's with them, infinite knowledge is shared like so much knowledge is shared just by proximity like he never says and then we tripped our balls off and learned all about the history of the world he's just kind of like their presence was near and their kind of their level of consciousness was so high it transferred it was like this transfer of knowledge and wisdom and everything am i well i mean they, they use 
They utilize several methods. Um, and this is why I don't think a, anybody can know who the six ever were. Also, as you read his book, he only ever meets five of the six. He's the six. Well, that's where I was going with that. I'm pretty sure he is Scarlet. Yeah. Uh, um, I, I, I'm quite comfortable thinking that. I haven't had anybody uh, throw any other suggestion out there. But no, because of the expertise in securities and, you know, forgery and disappearing and remoteness and blending in, uh, I don't think any of them ever have a single identity and any birth identity they may have been given has long since been abolished. So I, you know, I, nobody's going to be able to make this, but you know, I think, uh, so as, as myself, a chemist and a drug enthusiast, I actually had no idea who William Leonard Ricard was when I picked up this book the first time. Oh, you didn't. I picked up this book because it's called The Rose of Paracelsus. Okay. So Paracelsus, as you mentioned, uh, Borges had written about Paracelsus. Um, a couple other people had but he's a 16th century alchemist. Okay. Who supposedly raises a rose from its ashes. Um, and he, he's responsible for two, two like main quotes. Uh, one of them I preach all the time, and that is specifically dosis sola facit veninum which means only the dose makes the poison, meaning, uh, you know, poison isn't inherent in any one substance, but in fact, in the dosage of the substance. Um, but that's not what, you know, the story of the rose, of Paracelsus's rose is about. Mm -hmm. But when the six start teaching and, you know, letting him into the circle or the other five, as we seem to be inclined. The other major quote from Paracelsus, which is actually in reference to his resurrection of that rose, is there could be no creation for the lack of faith and the trust of gold. And I think when you look at how they describe the sacredness and intent necessary behind the manufacture of LSD, as well as how one needs to carry, carry their life and have intention in all things, that, only that pure of heart can even remotely come close to touching this. You know, and when you meet Leonard, that pure of heart is immediately unveiled to you. as a feather. When we came up, I remember I was there. I was, so I'm going to paint a picture for y'all. We had our first, first Entheofest. We had information tables in the middle of University of Michigan campus for decriminalized nature, for the Psychedelic Society, for Students for Sensible Drug Policy, for Reeds and Weeds. 
We had all these people coming up to the table and I was like, I really want Leonard Picard to sign these books. And I know he's on stage and if someone could get him over there and suddenly he's right next to me signing the books, he was right next to me. I'm like, oh, he's right there. And I was like, oh my gosh, thank you so much for coming. Wow. Okay. You're signing him. Here's one. Here's one. He's like, I'll be back. I'll come back after I speak. I'll, I'll come back and sit in the tent. And I was like, oh, okay. Like he was, there's all these mobs of people around and everybody's so excited to see him. And he was just so gentle and soft spoken and yeah, presence, presence for sure. He is in the moment, but in the most peaceful moment at all times. I, it, the Buddhism really comes through when you meet him. You know, the just overall contentness and peace in every situation. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So this book is, uh, you don't just whip through it on the beach one day. You kind of have to have a dictionary. And, and the thing is, is what I realized is I don't want to rush through it, which is why I want to talk about it before I finish it, because I don't want to rush to finish this book. I want to read it and think about it and read it and think about it the way I did long, 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 long time ago with Sin and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, because I was like, this is a big idea that I need to read a chapter and then ride my bike around for a few hours and let it all settle in and then read a little bit more and let it settle in. Because another I, fantastic book. So I just I'm just at this point where he has in this book, um, in this book, it's kind of he's at Harvard, but on as part of being at Harvard, he's also traveling suddenly to Russia or to France or to Germany or to England. And he's meeting with top level diplomats sort of with the six or guided by one of the six and on those journeys which are just happening like there's no discussion of how they happen or how he got connected or where the money came from or anything he's suddenly just in germany in a room with a official and they're talking about the, the heroin problem or in that country or the facilitation of sort of precursor drugs being sent from another country through that country. And he's really straightforward in a straightforward manner. He is trying to communicate with that official, like, here's what I'm trying to do. We already have a methamphetamine problem in America and I'm hearing there might be one in Russia. So I'm researching that. And he finds some people who are like, no, that's not happening. That's our official stance. Sometimes he's cast off to people. He's, I'm at the point where he's suggesting, why don't you let some chemists work with you to help you understand this? And in the middle of doing that, he's revealing that, that they all have a thought about what's going to be the next big problem. And that, when I thought this was published a long time ago, I was completely freaked out because he's saying, well, some people think it's going to be the drugs that 
make us too pleasant because then we can't see the reality of like the terrible things in the world. And some people think it's going to be the ones that make you too aroused because then people are fighting and fucking and killing each other. And it's too much. Like they're talking about the different drugs that they're worried about. And I'm like, Oh my God, I didn't even, I wasn't thinking about it the way they talk about it. But of course we all know if we watch television that pharmaceuticals that do all manner of things to your brain are coming at us. Well, so I, I think, you know, it's fine that you bring up uh, those two types of drugs because I mean, definitely the conversation they're having, but uh, a drug that does both those things, MDMA. Picard has a history as an MDMA chemist as well. Um, which isn't talked about as much because um, he was never caught for it. Um, and, you know, if, if you talk to him about any of this, he'll be like, well, allegedly, I was making a lot of LSD. Like, he, he still won't admit it, even after having already essentially done his time. I mean, he's a very brilliant man. But uh, talking to him uh, before Antheofest, we got into these conversations of, you know, essentially designer drugs and, you know, the 2C series, the 25 and bone series, uh, the DO series, uh, synthetic cannabinoids. And, you know, essentially, you know, we're never going to get ahead of this if we treat it as a problem and keep trying to ban because chemistry is such a beautiful art. Yeah. Um, and and, and this, you know, what he called it. It's a beautiful art that will always find its way because our nature is to explore chemically. Um, through whether, I mean, look how we treat sugar, nicotine, uh, caffeine, alcohol, like we will always, you know, uh, people eating ice cream, like it's a, yeah, yeah, it, oh, it, it's it, in it, our it, nature. And it, so it, I, well, I'm thinking about, um, in my brain, I've probably been guilty of lumping things into big categories right? There's the things that lower your blood pressure and whoever made them or probably have nothing to do with people who make drugs that make you horny or they have nothing to do with people who make drugs that are just party drugs. But the thing is, is it's chemistry. It's chemistry and they're thinking about it in a chemical way. And the people that he's working with are, it's about their intention. Are they trying to control their population from a small fortress? Are they trying to rid someone of a terrible disease? Are they trying to get people to enter a new level of consciousness? And he's trying to, I feel like he's at such a level of, I'm just trying to figure out the way to do this and have a conversation about it. But there's so much power and suspicion and control involved with it that 
there's very little trust. There's lots of suspicion and very little trust about the discussion of it, which there still is to a degree. But in this book, it's him talking to the person with who can make the thing happen or not happen. The one person in Russia who can sign the thing that puts that chemical in the path of becoming part of this process. If that person believes this thing, he'll do it. If he does not believe that thing, but every other person in the country that's working with him does, it's not going to go through. Right. I'm watching. Him. Well, I mean, this is, I think, the beautiful part about his story is his understanding and i mean you see it in that you know i'm a i'm doing graduate studies as a fellow doing research at harvard school of medicine as a chemist yeah but i'm also you know enrolled at kennedy school of government at harvard as well his knowledge of how to play that politics game while having that deep understanding of human nature and chemistry give him the ability to move in those circles almost seamlessly and it's it's a little scary to be honest like scary because he comes across as a shy poet type guy as like an introverted poet type guy is what he comes across as immediately if you don't know and then you start talking to him and I don't even know where to begin. I just don't know. I have so many questions. I, I almost said, as my biggest regret of spending time with him was I didn't get to ask a lot of the questions I had. But realistically, it, it's not a regret. I'm glad instead of fanboying out over him, uh, as I very much, you know, had urges to do leading up to actually meeting him, that instead... Uh, we just hung out and we talked yeah. about life and drug and beauty. And, you know, I, I didn't dig into his history. I didn't need to know when I was around him. And, you know, in the same way he said to you at the table, don't worry, I'll be back. Yeah. He, 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 he didn't say goodbye. Learn. <laughs> he didn't say goodbye. He yeah. said, I'll see you later. Yeah. Like, he knows, like, I I don't know. It, it, but that's why I started off when you with your first question. Like, the man's an enigma. I was like, yeah. really can't wrap my head around him other than the fact that his energy is something I am very appreciative of. And his insight and knowledge into the very things I'm involved in as, you know, a chemist and mycologist, as a political activist, and, you know, somebody who does a lot of lobbying, uh, like, there's a lot of parallel there. And instead of just being in shock and awe, just being able to share space with him and get to, like, have normal conversations where we're relating on a level is an incredibly powerful experience, but I learned absolutely nothing about him other than right. <laughs> like, right. like, well, just read this book. What you know is his brain is so 
I, the reason why I don't even know what to do, it's like you meet someone with the, the brain that wrote this book and it's, it's a little awe-inspiring, I think. Because there's so, good writers, there's good, you know, if like if I met John Irving or I met Stephen King, I'd be like, oh yeah, this guy wrote great books that I know. But they're not also a chemist, world travel politician, ex-con, revolutionary. Former government <laughs> official, like, no. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think, you know, having watched documentaries from the view of the lead on the DEA bust, having watched documentaries. What is that called? I want to know. Good freaking question. Oh, I wish no. I could remember. Um, it's definitely Googleable. It was, uh, I believe it was on Netflix like a year ago. But then there's also a documentary on Todd Skinner, which we haven't even talked about Skinner when we're talking about these books yet. I'm not sure if you even gotten to the story of Todd Skinner yet. But then there's also, I'm going to space on her name, but she used to be the NeuroSoup girl who was in the silo with them from... I'm going to read the Googleable thing. So hold on one second. I just Googled, I Googled something like documentary on William Leonard Picard. What came up was the acid king convicted, acid king is in quotes, convicted of running the biggest LSD ring in history. A new book tells the story of William Leonard Picard, who was accused of manufacturing enough acid for 40 million trips, 400 million trips. 74-year-old William Leonard Picard is a stand-up guy, employed as a paralegal at a law firm in New Mexico. He specializes in casework, casework for the local indigenous Pueblo community, a long-suffering group for which he facilitates disputes, evictions, civil spats, and other everyday torts. He enjoys walking, hanging in nature, and reading Victorian literature in his spare time, of which he has lots of after being released from jail in July 2020. So his his lab buried in the recesses of a decommissioned Kansas missile silo owned by his eccentric co-conspirator Todd Skinner contained as much as 41.3 kilograms of LSD impregnated material enough for nearly 400 million stamps of pure LSD. Maybe it's too good to be true. Not only did he never work with Skinner, but the true quantity of acid was less than half a pound. Well, so you get to understand how the DEA prosecutes things. And I think looking to mushrooms and weed is a really good way to understand this. Okay, okay. So they take wet weight of unharvested weed as well as the whole plant and the root ball with all the soil and they weigh it in. Uh, Mushrooms, they take the entire substrate that isn't active and they're like, hey, look, this is a... 700 pounds when really it was only going to harvest about seven pounds dry or whatever. Um, so, you know, it, the numbers may be skewed a bit and that's understandable based on chemicals that may have been present. The mo- One of the movies I was referring, because there's a couple documentaries I've seen 
but one of them I was referring is called Getting High on Crystal, K-R-Y-S-T-L-E. So Crystal Cole was the young lady, NeuroSoup girl that I was talking about. I just Googled okay. that. Um, it was a Vice documentary uh, that about the, it, but it focuses a bit more on her and Skinner. And I believe it's more, I believe that one was more from the perspective of the DEA lead. And so as you start to re- hear Crystal Cole's stories from watching NeuroSoup and her various things, as you start to see some of these documentaries, you get painted several very different pictures. Oh my and God. Yeah. Then, then you read the book um, and you're like, wait, everything I know is a lie or this man's the biggest con artist of all time. And I've always had that kind of lingering in the back of my head. Maybe this guy's the best swindler ever. Picard and then, well, Picard, until I read his book and met him, because the book makes you think Skinner's the biggest swindler ever. Yeah. But meeting Picard, either I got swindled, I don't think that's the case, or I have more faith in the book than I do some of these documentaries. But each, uh, you know, Crystal Cole is one of the few people on this earth that has tried as many designer drugs as she actually has. Like, I, I, I can list off a hundred designer drugs right now out of Shogun's uh, pharmacopias and, you know, whatever that I've tried. And I don't even come close to what was tried on Crystal Cole. And, you know, if you, if you ask Skinner, who I believe Skinner is now dead, um, but from his perspective, Leonard was experimenting on Crystal. From Leonard's perspective, he was making these drugs and Skinner picked Crystal up and kind of kept her prisoner and tried all the drugs on her. Uh, wow. <laughs> So, and you know, all of this is like, it's all hearsay. It's, you know, you got so many different versions, you don't know what to believe. But with this book specifically, because of his poetic style and his incredible uh, vocabulary for describing things, yeah, you get pulled in. And so all I can tell you about the second half is get prepared to cry a lot. No, tell me why. Is he still? Does he stay doing this journey, or does it move completely on? It it moves on, and I, I tell you those. Sure, I think it moves on, but what I mean is like, like the last two chapters. All I, I mean, it's been a long time since I've read the book through the end. Okay. Uh, it's it's been a few years. So the specifics are a bit hazy, but I remember both times I've been through the end of the book, those last couple chapters, I bawled my eyes out. Wow. Okay. All right. I'm going to read a couple of quotes because this is the first um, mid book (laughs) show I've ever done, but I had to stop because of a couple of things. So when he is describing, um, 
when he is describing when he encounters one of the six, right? A lot of times it's like an immediate hallucination where he immediately knows the history of every single thing around him. If he's in the middle of a square in a country, all of a sudden he knows everyone that's born and died there and all the political reasons why. It's, it's that, it's that consciousness that flows through everything. All of a sudden he, he's plugged into it. Yes, yes. And all memory is there. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to, he's, he's basically reading about how suddenly he's aware of everything. So overwhelmed, I staggered, then sought balance for the psychic effects heightened with each encounter of the six distortions of physiognomies soon made stone crusaders laugh like Mephistopheles. Their robes alight with swirling languages and ecclesiastical scripts in rainbows of words. Sarcophagi disgorged fully formed Egyptian kings. And the reformer, Amenhotep IV, gazed sternly upon the adder and the asp, while the priestess whores of Babylon were anointed with oils and worshipped with gold. The occult breathings thickened with harem's perfumes as the eight full breasts of Diana Multimamia beckoned filled with the sweet milk of apostical labors. Um, Sherazade, naked but for wisp of Episcopal skills, trailed St. Elmo's fire from her arms as Orpheus Lyre coaxed a fecund... Here's what I'm talking about with words, y'all. <laughs> Eurydice back from Hades. The phenomena both feigned and promised infinity. This is the main one. The, the phenomena both feigned and promised infinity, like the interminable number of hexagonal galleries in Borges' Library of Babel. Our elaborate brigantine of perception, at first issuing forth with following seas and a fair wind to fill its studding sail, top gallants, royals, and flying gym, soon foundered in the roiling oceans of dissolving science and ethics and history and morals. We found a sacristan's bench and somehow breathlessly managed an exchange. They're in a museum. So they're looking at the museum and then it kind of comes to life, right? And he says, but we can't live like this. I cried in the museum's hush, right? So the reason why I wanted to get to that, but we can't live like this is the reason why things like integration circles exist is because if someone experiences that much knowledge, suddenly that feeling of we can't live like this. And I just looked on the face of God and don't know what to do with it. Or I have too much consciousness now. And what do we do with it? That's what I was thinking with that. <laughs> because that's no, absolutely and I, I like this. Versus, you know, I you know, when we're talking about a lot of drugs out there, um yeah. it, it you know, we cannabis, nicotine, sugar again, uh yeah. cocaine, heroin, you you can do it and you can do it again, 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 and you know, it does its thing. Whereas this LSD experience or the mushroom experience or the ayahuasca experience, these entheogens, these substances that awaken the divine within. 
You can't live like that. They are openings into this vast cosmos of consciousness, but you can't stay there. And again, like you said, this is why integration is so important is it's so much information. You've got to have some way to process that afterwards to do anything with it. Um, You know, as well as anybody, uh, the psychedelic experience is something that is literally inutterable. You can try and try and try to explain it to somebody that's never experienced it, but you will never do it a true justice. Yeah. But you can't live there. And I, yeah, it's on. It's, well, when I think about, you know, in the Bible, you see the face of God and you go blind and you fall down and and you can't know that much. You have to be like yeah. led back to a place where you can sort of handle the idea that you've seen the face of God. So contrasted with, <laughs> contrasted with, he's with one of the six and he's asking about vermilion. And then he says, uh, he's asking like, what are... They're at a party. There's a bunch of people meeting. One of them is missing his family. And he says, he's asking, like, should we be worried by them talking about us in there? Something like that. He doesn't ask it that exact way. But he says uh, that one of the six says, a few of their senior analysts might recall rumors of us, likely dismissed as fantasy, or in their more inspired moments may sense the reality. But we're a minor or non-existent issue to those who do not perceive a silent revolution of individual epiphanies. And that I highlighted because the individual epiphanies, I'll give you an example. Some One of my friends was playing in the band that day. The, I was friends with the band. And so some of them were there, you know, just kind of like, oh, yeah, I got a gig today. And they had had a gig the night before and a gig the night before that. But when we talked about it after, they said, that place that day felt so good. Everyone looked me in the eye and was calm. And it's different than being in a bar. It's different than being... Do you know what I mean? Nobody really wanted anything from me. Everybody was just kind of welcoming and at peace. And it felt totally different than where we've been playing before. And I realized that you cannot underestimate the power of a whole bunch of people with elevated consciousness. There's kind of no other way to put it in that the person who's not concerned about that doesn't understand the way he put it, the silent revolution of individual epiphanies, which is the best way I can think of it. Well, I mean, that's, that's Gandhi's like, be the change. Don't, don't spark the change. Don't go preaching to other people. Be the change. Like that, individual silent epiphany is the greatest revolution there is personal freedom from the shackles that bind us regardless of whether those shackles may still seem to exist to the outsider 
that conscious freedom is the biggest threat to systems of control there is. That is the greatest revolution. And the idea that there's somehow something coordinating all this is such a fantastical idea that is beyond our, you know, accepted science by the masses that you can laugh it off. And so they're not a threat. Yeah, yeah. Well, and so the other way he puts it is um, he's with Crimson. I just realized in this chapter, he's with Crimson. So all the six are named Colors, Vermilion, Magenta, Crimson. And Harvard is also known as Crimson. There's something going on there. But you ultimately, he's asking this. We can never rest in the illusion we are safe, he said quietly, in brittle contrast to the innocence before us. Almost all arrests are a result of informants, rarely from accidents. Nothing occurs from analysis or investigation alone. Exposure, we feel, is inversely proportional to meticulous care, but can never approach zero. And he responds, but you ultimately are a target not only to 50 international DEA offices and the UN programs and Interpol, but to every police agency in the world across 170 countries. The global information grid for national security and law enforcement is being deployed. A working paranoia is a rational necessity, he replied, looking with benevolence upon the blossoms of English society as he whispered his words. But there is no dignity in being afraid. We do not cower as criminals for our intention is to end suffering in our small way, no less than any devoted priest or physician. We have the calm of feeling unchallenged on moral grounds and persevere with a certain balanced tranquility, never in haste or self-defeating anxiety. So, So, yes. uh, so when we were having this panel, which I really hope this panel comes out soon from the night before, and Theofest oh, recorded it. Oh yes, no, we're we're uh, putting that out. It just has oh, a lovely. Um, and it's beautiful. But both Leonard and Barking Dog talk about natural law. And I think we heard Barking Dog speak a little bit about that at Entheofest as well. I didn't get to actually hear him, but I, knowing him, knowing the flyers he was handing out, I, I'm certain that's it. And talking essentially like man's law cannot supersede something so divine and inherent given to us by nature. And, you know, while LSD is a synthetic, you know, we were talking about entheogens. Uh, uh, we were talking about naturally occurring entheogens. So, like, in specifically, we were referring to mushrooms. And mushrooms, as you know, produce the same sort of, you know, conscious aha as LSD. Um, and, I mean, LSD comes, we've talked about this in past episodes, LSD coming from a fungus uh, that, you know, infects rye crops and wheat crops, cereal grains. Um, we, yeah, ergot. When we were talking about, uh, you know, uh, some biblical stories, um, 
you know, that ergot poisoning, quote unquote, remember Paracelsus, poison is in the dose, not in the substance, but yes, language is funny like that. Ergot poisoning was probably likely to be at play at uh, some of these hallucinations and mystical experiences that are happening. So LSD is essentially to that experience the same as all the Johns Hopkins research that's coming out to the psilocybin experience. Um, Johns Hopkins isn't doing work with mushrooms. They're doing work with synthesized psilocybin. Yeah. And so, I, you know, when we talk about this with us, the, I, you know, one of the things we hear a lot is, you know, oh, but it's not natural. No, it's very freaking natural. And this idea of separating synth- synthesized chemicals from naturally occurring chemicals is actually just a farce of the uninitiated in chemistry. Like, if you actually understand chemistry, you realize there's plenty of naturally occurring chemicals that are far more dangerous to us than things that are synthesized. And synthesis doesn't inherently make something dangerous. I think, I think my, what was interesting for me about, it didn't freak me out. It just made me hyper aware of, he's having conversations on these journeys around the world just kind of, so what do you think is going to be the next big horrible thing? And, and, and it's, and it's alluding to like behavioral modification, sort of nootropics, like people who are so wanting to be perfect and think faster and speak more languages and be beautiful and have clear skin and have white teeth and that it's, it becomes madness or people who want their mood changed so, so much that they don't, they can't even see reality at all. So they don't even understand the ugly. It's well, you got yeah, realize. So this is all these conversations happening with the sex are previous to the actual Kansas LSD missile silo. So like, I mean, there may be a little bit of overlap, but the missile silo is the end of the story before he gets arrested. And so if that happens in 2000, all these meetings and his time at Harvard and, you know, when he's in Russia overseeing uh, the... Uh, decommissioning of nuclear warheads and uh, in another country, you know, I mean, just the things he gets himself involved with are absolutely baffling, as you said. But these things are happening at a time that Adderall and Ritalin are really starting to come out to treat ADHD at a time that SSRIs are really making their predominance in anti-depression, uh, anti-anxiety uh, treatment um, at a time where, I mean, we'd seen it before, you know, mommy's little helper, uh, you know, Valium and Benzo, but it, it's been going on forever. But in the early late 80s, early 90s, we started to reach a pinnacle pharmaceutically where this was so encouraged behavioral 
modification, mood modification. And our our knowledge of chemistry had, uh, the brain's chemistry, before that, we didn't have the technology to understand brain chemistry the way we did then. Yeah. Now, 20 years later, I mean, you were talking about, uh, I think it was, I don't even remember who he was talking to, one of the six, but talking about, you know, these fear-based surveillance systems are just starting to integrate and network across the globe. Like they've always existed, but new technology is empowering them to connect at a new level. Yeah. This is 20 some years ago, 25, 30 years ago that they're having this conversation Mm -hmm. and all the things they're talking about have 100% come into play and you see where it's driven fear. Mm-hmm. And that comment about you can't let fear be the driving factor. Um, and, you know, I think what people are discovering in this, you know, new heightened technological fear of, you know, everything's connected. I mean, every time we take a picture with our phone, somebody's getting facial recognition from us. We're being tracked, GPS, everywhere we go. And, you know, it sounds like this fantastical, like, terrifying idea. But also the mountain of data that's there is so unsiftable that unless you're already throwing up red flags... Yeah. You don't you, you just don't need to lead in fear um, and you don't need to create these fantastical ideas that you're doing something so terrible. But I think these psychedelic experiences help us become hyper aware. Now, yeah, Big Brother 1984 is we're there, yeah. but but we're not scared. <laughs> we don't need to live in fear of it yeah. because like we there's something bigger, a higher power at play. Um, and, you know, that is the consciousness that flows through beyond time and all people and everything. So in, in, um, in honor of this being a mini-sode and both of us uh, and me being halfway through the book, I think we should wrap it up and leave people wanting more. Um, they should want more um, because, they, because I because I, I don't I can't talk about it enough. I need to read yeah. the next half, but because I just sent we so for the listeners that are just listening, <laughs> when we had Entheofest, I had a raffle and we did a book drawing, and it was just free. People filled out little things, and I gave away four of these signed books and then a whole little library of books. So I've been reading this book, giving this book away, mailing this book out. I met the man that wrote this book. That's why we're doing this little episode on this book, because if you're ready to read this story, it's huge. It's huge. It encompasses the whole world and all kinds of philosophies and consciousnesses and poetry. And it's worth, it's worth it. And so, um, and I'm kind of just so curious to see I hope he gets to stay out. I mean, he's 74, obviously. If the pandemic calms down, I'm sure they're not going to put him back in, right? No, no. A compassionate release is a permanent thing. Um, Okay, okay. 
I didn't, I heard something about people going back in and I was like, oh no. No, he, he is not a threat to society. He um, was never a threat to society. Right. Unless you're a person who considers even, even a million doses, right? Even if it wasn't 400 million, if it was a million and you're afraid and you don't understand, to me, that's like, ooh, what would happen to the right million people, you know, gathered together? Let's give it a shot, you know, on the same day at the same time. But to a person- Man, I thought I was heavy involved with 100,000, allegedly, uh, back, in, back in my heyday. And Shit. 40 million. That, that's crazy. Um, but also at the same time, you know, you brought up, I, I do want to hit on this because uh, we talk about this. Can, leave us with a, with a, with a wrap up. If for the course- talk about this connection uh, that every time he runs into six, this heightened awareness comes up. This yeah. is something I've actually experienced with this book. I had this book. It was definitely one of my all-time favorite reads. And, you know, as you know, we've talked about before, I spent a lot of time reading during my recent stint of incarceration. Mm-hmm. And the very first chapter. Were you talk- reading a book in prison? Okay. Well, not the first time. Okay. But, okay. but, but yes, we're going to get to this. Okay. This heightened consciousness moment. I wasn't even thinking about this book. I was trying to read new things. But in the very first chapter, he mentions uh, Wagner's The Ring Cycle. Um, He's listening to it. And, you know, as he's working on his studies. And I was sitting in jail listening to public radio. And they put on a eight-hour, like, Two versions of Wagner's Ring Cycle, the full cycle. This is four operas. Yeah. And it's the first time I'd ever consciously listened to it. And I didn't immediately draw the connection to this book. But it was while listening to that that this started to bubble up. And I'm like, wait, I know about this from somewhere. This is really familiar. And it was while listening to it that night, the rose showed up in jail for my friend. And I picked it up because I knew I loved it and I started reading it. And right there, third page of the book, I'm listening to Wagner's ring cycle and I'm listening to Wagner's ring cycle. And like, it's that confirmation of the synchronicity, the connectivity of everything. Um, that The whole book is filled with that power. The man is filled with that power. And it like, it makes me want to read it again. It makes me want to go turn that on and uh, go listen. When you brought up Edelweiss, it's the same thing. Like mm-hmm. it's, got that connectivity for me. I don't think he's the greatest swindler ever. But um but, but if he is, he's definitely the greatest. He's a genius. <laughs> he's a genius at it. I mean, and he's really nice. 
He did do what he said. So yeah, no, I I don't either. I don't either. If you re, if you see some of the other documentaries from other perspectives, he was painted as such. Really? And yes. Yes. Interesting. Okay, I'm very curious. I'm very curious. And so that's why, like, that was always lingering in the back of the head. But having read his book a couple times. Yeah. Having met the man and had yeah. conversations with him, I couldn't be more convinced to the contrary. Ugh. It's like maybe it's just so hard to believe that that it's it's a it's a fantastical life no matter how you look at it. Oh, you know, like you said, I don't know which parts to take as legitimate, which parts to take as an allegory. And having met the man, I wouldn't be surprised if every single word is absolute truth. And that's bonkers to me. That's bonkers. (laughs) And if not, then I respect his level of imagination and detail to make it up you know that's really true so i do think we are going to have him uh when we do get around to starting up again uh he has agreed to be on the entheo show um great okay yeah uh, but we've been supposed to start that every other week since August 6th. And uh, me and Jim are just so incredibly busy. Colin's got a new job. Um, but he has agreed. And now that we've got that very personal connection, I have no question that that is, in fact, going to happen. Okay. Well, now I've got to go watch these documentaries and finish the book and blah. But thank you for taking the time. I know how busy you are. Uh, keep doing all the work you do. Um, this is my favorite podcast to be on. Even if I don't have time and I'm not awake, <laughs> I still will show up. Well, good. Well, good. I love that. So keep working hard. I will let you know when I have my next kaboom moment with the book. And uh, hit me up when you're back in this area, all right? Will do. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening, y'all. Bye. Bye.